welcome to Stories with Drinks, a podcast where we over-psychoanalyze characters from our favorite movies, TV, and media. I'm Jennifer, she, her, hers. And I'm Tyler, he, his, him. And we are diving into a world of heroes and heroes? Question <laughs> mark? Who is the hero of this Hero show? is a strong word with this show. Very strong word, actually. A, nobody's good. Nobody's quite good, but the one thing we know for sure is that the boys are going to do something weird to try to help. That's right. We are talking about Amazon Prime's The Boys. And for our get-to-know-you question, me and Tyler actually were jokingly saying that either we've done a question prior that would work so well for this like what's your like what would be your superpower or for the boys it's just really inappropriate content so it's like <laughs> nope can't do that but we eventually you know work together to come up with what i think is a pretty good get to know you question of during the the run of the show you see a lot from like the violence to the sexual to the drugs so tyler what do you think is one of the most disturbing things that you have witnessed go down in the boys. I think uh, for me, the most disturbing scene uh, there, and there's two that come to mind, both have to do with Homelander, who I think is an extremely disturbing character. Yes. Uh, but uh, spoiler alert. Uh, well, first of all, I think before we dive deep into anything on this content warning Big yeah. old constant warning all over this episode. Huge I have no like warning. just everything triggering you can think of is in this show. And if you are not prepared for talk about violence, talk about sexual stuff that's kind of gross, talk sexual about violence, sexual like, violence, um, all sorts of really horrible things, political maybe events, is, like, yeah, like that highlights our political events. Yeah, so. maybe not the episode for you. Uh, if you're okay with talking about those topics, you're more than welcome to stick around. But yeah, this is going to be a pretty rough one. So I wanted to lay that out on the table. Yes. First things first. Um, and to talk about Homelander. Uh, yeah, dude's very disturbing as a character. Is very much a like psychopath, sociopath kind of mm -hmm. dude. Um, but the, and then content warning and spoiler alert. We're going to mm -hmm. spoil the crap out of this most recent <laughs> season. Um, at the very end of season three, Homelander is introducing the world to his son. Yes. Uh, and he lasers a dude, like a protester to death. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the equivalent of what would be our real world, like QAnon, yeah. essentially, cheers him on for it. And he thinks that he's going to be a pariah because of that. But instead, this massive group of people just goes, yeah, absolutely. And that to me is disturbing on a very deep level because of like, you know, real world events that are happening, uh, the way that misinformation is being spread, the way that people are blindly following political leaders without mm -hmm. necessarily having um, critical thinking skills being applied to it. And, and honestly, I see that on both sides of the aisle. It's not one or mm -hmm. the other, um, but truly, mirroring our real world of like we're going to blindly follow this leader they could kill somebody right in front of us in broad daylight which is something that one of our former political leaders has said uh, mm -hmm. i could shoot somebody on fifth avenue and nobody would, would blink or even think twice about it and the boys just doubled down on that particular right. line from our real world and showed it and i found that to be extremely disturbing 
the other one is at the end of season two, I think, or beginning of season, somewhere in season two, there's a scene of Homelander um, masturbating on a rooftop yeah. uh, and basically saying, like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one is disturbing in a completely different way in that it shows just how unhinged this person is, that mm-hmm. his, he gets sexual gratification, not from like things that are pretty normative to get sexual gratification from it's from feeling like he's got all the power feeling like this very narcissistic i have all the power thing and that deeply disturbs me because i've known a couple narcissists in my time and, right um, oh for sure most of the homelander scenes i think definitely rank for me piggybacking off of your first example mm-hmm. mine occurs shortly after that where in season three we do see a lot but when his son sees what happens mm-hmm. and then smiles yeah that freaked me out more because <laughs> it is such that innate learning of oh this is okay like this is like the next generation learning what they can get away with and yeah. what's okay and what's not okay and you see so many people try to one like t- hide the truth from him which in general, not always a smart plan of trying to hide truths from kids. They find out, and usually if they find out from other sources, um, it's not good. And that idea of he's learning that there are no consequences to your actions. And he's learning that these maybe this power and control is something he can have too. And this the sick little that kid actor's good, the sick little smile that he has in the process um for sure probably one of the more disturbing scenes and then I was just kind of in general talking about you know the sex and the violence is one thing like the superhero context with it all is one thing but my most disturbing moments have been those real life comparisons to what's happened in our political events where they're using direct like quotes or they're using direct references that like there's no way of going around that that was a reference to the capital riots that is a reference to you know the me too movement that's a reference to this and that and how twisted it gets to show how twisted our context in the extreme gets of like oh no we can just blow this off because it's no big deal because i have the power yeah absolutely you can violence i don't really whatever like yeah (laughs) political events being highlighted of how extreme it's gotten nowadays and how dangerous it's gotten nowadays that's disturbing yeah i completely agree and i think it's it's something that the writing does really well you know i really enjoy obviously films and movies and things and including like behind the scenes and how stuff is made and there's a lot of discussion on you know the internet at large about how satire is really difficult to write now because the world has just kind of for lack for lack of a better term jumped the shark like (laughs) our real world is so absurd and the headlines that we read every day are so just outrageous that um it makes satire extremely difficult to write now in the same way that it was being written before and i think that the boys does a really good job of it because Mm -hmm. it's not satire for the sake of look at how funny this is and instead it's satire for the sake of look at how horrifying yeah. all of this stuff is. Absolutely. And that for me, like you said, the the violence, sure. Yeah, there's some stuff that's like, oh, wow, that mm-hmm. was really bloody and gory or that was really shocking. 
but for the most part, the stuff that like sticks with you is the, the stuff where they're paralleling and, you know, making a statement on some of the stuff that's going on in our reality currently, um, including, you know, this disinformation and in my opinion, in my views, I'll own these as mine uh, is, you know, the rise of fascism in this country and, you know, things that are happening in that regard uh, that, you know, that was made, it was way more difficult to watch than a dude exploding out of the urethra of another guy. Right. Right. Which I think also speaks to our saturated, violent, like world and the fact that like, oh no, these things don't bother me, but these do. and that it's becoming much more that like even in the show they like oh whatever it's just another dead body yeah let's talk about how this is the issue here like how like it doesn't matter how many people we kill like i want to manipulate the politics i want to manipulate the narrative and you they speak to that more than the actual number count yeah and then i think uh just another thing that they do really well as far as it is disturbing, just because I was thinking about it just now, was is like taking the characters that you do actually care about, because let's be honest, Butcher and Huey are not great people. No. And so you you don't necessarily care about them in the way of like you want them to succeed, you want them to win. It's more so you want to see what happens when the train wreck finally comes with those mm-hmm. characters. But then you have characters like Frenchie and Kimiko and mm-hmm. MM and, you know, a lot of the supporting cast are these people who you really do want to see succeed, who you do right. really want to see, like, have their, like, get what they want. Uh, mm-hmm. In season three specifically, like, you, there, there's just such a big part of you that wants Frenchie and Kimiko to run away together and to mm-hmm. get away from all this stuff. And they talk about that with each other. Um, and then of course, because this is the world of the boys and not a fairy tale, that's not something that happens. Right. Um, and I think that that's pretty disturbing in its own right. I was thinking of the scene where, uh, Frenchie's ex and Kimiko are both kidnapped and Frenchie's mm-hmm. like, like bike locked to a, from on the neck, like to a pipe and has to watch them being tortured and then mm-hmm. stuff happens. But like that alone is pretty disturbing to watch these characters who really just want to do good in the world being totally beat down by the world because it's a very horrible place to live, this universe, so. Absolutely, absolutely. And with all that said, we will dive in more because there's so much we could talk about with the boys. And to start off with, Tyler, I do believe you have a new client. I do. I am here in the New York tri-state area. I'm not exactly sure where I'm at, um, but definitely in the greater New York area uh, in this land. Uh, And I am talking to a gentleman who is in his 40s. He's African-American, cisgender male, heterosexual, currently working as a government contractor. He lives on his own and has visitation with his daughter um, and often will go pick her up from her mother's house. Has a working relationship with the mother of his daughter but uh not necessarily going the way that he'd like uh and i am talking to marvin t milk or mm uh as he is known by his friends uh but he i call him marvin uh because well i'm his therapist not his friend (laughs) so typically i'm going to be calling him marvin uh and marvin typically i think the thing that would be bringing him in 
specifically for therapy is dealing with the familial separation. Uh, given his work and the fact that he was wanted for a little while, now he's a government contractor, so that stuff's gone away. I would just say the court system probably not being particularly kind to him, and he might be even mandated uh, to go to therapy in order to have visitation with his daughter. So this is sort of my take on that. And so our main goal would be talking about familial separation and what it looks like to co-parent with someone who he clearly still has a lot of feelings for uh, and is actively trying to, you know, pull his family back together, even though his ex has kind of blatantly told him, like, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And so that would be where we start and working on the reality of that situation and getting him to accept the reality of the situation uh, would be that first piece of working with him on therapy. And Building up rapport would be such an important part of this with him because I don't want to be like, hey, man, what you're saying is not realistic. This is the reality of what's going on without having a relationship to back that up, because then he's ne- he's just not going to come back. He's going to leave therapy and never return. So instead, it's just about building that relationship with him, talking about, you know, tell me about what's gotten you here to this point in your life. I obviously I can't tell other people. So like you can lay it all out here. We can talk about what's happened. And like, you know, he feels that he, of his government contracting team that he's a part of, he's like the glue that has to hold everyone together because the other members of his team are actively trying to, you know, separate everybody through their decision-making. At least that's what he feels. And so to talk to him about what it means to be the caretaker of a group like this and how can you take care of yourself what are the ways in which he can engage in some self-care so that way he's not necessarily feeling like he's at the end of his rope all the time. Uh, as specifically with government work, uh, you know, getting him to do use his PTO. Hey, you've got vacation and sick days. Use them. Uh, and I often talk to people about this in with doing career counseling and stuff when people are like, I just feel so burnt out with work. Cool. Do you have PTO? Yeah, actually, I keep working and working and working. I never take a vacation. Use your PTO. Hey, guess what? That's what it's for. Use it. Um, and working with him through that. And as we have built this rapport and built this relationship, started working on the family stuff, I think it would become very apparent that he's having a relapse with obsessive compulsive disorder, something that he's been diagnosed with in the past that has been fairly in check for him for a little while, but now it's sort of come back. And what's going on there? What's, you know, what's the connection there? And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit today because we don't, we haven't talked about obsessive compulsive disorder that much in here and how we're looking at it now versus how we looked at it previously. So in the DSM four days, which is a while now, now a while ago now, probably almost 10 years ago now, Mm -hmm. um, OCD was thought of as its own kind of separate thing. People were thinking it's like, it's, it's something from childhood. There's something going on here. It maybe has to do with trauma. Maybe it has to do with this. And the narrative of Marvin's stuff kind of fits that older definition of what we thought of OCD as. Whereas now uh, with the DSM-5 and with the research that's been done on OCD, we're looking more at how it connects to feelings of anxiety. And really that's sort of the connecting piece here. And yeah, that can include childhood stuff. It can include trauma, but really the way that we're looking at OCD now 
is more so involving that anxiety piece and how it's a coping skill for anxiety to have your brain intrusive thoughts. You're having a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. Intrusive thought goes, yeah, well, if you check the door lock five times, then the, you know, then nothing's going to happen. The, the, the oven won't blow up or whatever might be the thing. Um, and, and that becomes a coping skill to help that anxiety go away. Yeah, I'll go check the lock five times and then it's done and it's gone. And it builds on upon itself to these bigger things, which uh, Marvin actually describes as like, I know that I know that I can't control if a superhero is going to come through and kill my family, but I can wake up at midnight every night, go downstairs and check all of the burners. And that, and I know that if I do that, my family will be safe. And watching him like, tell that story and the pain and the embarrassment and the shame that he has related to these behaviors that he's doing to help lower his experience of anxiety and fear is really, I think the place to start. There's a lot of shame around this. And I think that that's relative to our society as well. OCD is something that's entered the public lexicon and it's not in a good way. Uh, it's similar to bipolar, and it's one of these, you know, mental health things that people are like, oh, I'm so OCD, uh, when in reality, you're really infantilizing this very difficult mental health issue. Uh, and it's the same thing with bipolar, where oh, people go, oh, I'm so bipolar, I'm all over the place today. That's not what these things actually are. And you're making them sound really small, when in fact, they're extremely large, um, you know, bipolar specifically in my opinion, needs both talk therapy and medical therapy in order to really have somebody manage it well. And OCD similarly could have, you know, a medical component that I would talk to him about like, hey, are you interested in taking like an antidepressant to help, you know, you know, work on this anxiety stuff? Uh, and to also understand, I'm not a medical doctor, but Commonly anxiety, what's been prescribed right now is antidepressants because anti-anxiolytics are really addictive. So most people are not, you know, prescribing those anymore. So instead it's, you know, would that be something you're interested in and talking to him about that and seeing if that's a thing that he would want to undergo and finding referrals for him. Finally, we get to sort of, for him, where all this stuff started which I mentioned before, there's a trauma narrative here. And the trauma narrative is that Soldier Boy, this old superhero that has been missing for decades, all of a sudden has popped back up uh, and, Mar and is right within Marvin's sphere. He's contracted to deal with rogue supers and that's what Soldier Boy is considered at the moment. And so now he's having all these old feelings come up, this trauma narrative, because Soldier Boy threw a car at a bad guy and that car went through his family's house and it killed his family members. And Marvin has a lot of blame going on about that. When he tells this story, it's about how I saw them fighting in the street and I went and woke up my grandfather and said, look, look, there's, there's Soldier Boy, look at him. And they were looking out the window and that's when the car flew through the window and killed his grandfather. And Marvin feels like if I hadn't woken up my grandfather, if I had just stayed quiet, we would have all been in our bedrooms and nobody would have died. 
And I think the part of that is processing through that narrative with him and discussing like what thoughts about it are realistic, what thoughts are unrealistic. And the self-blame is totally unrealistic. And pointing it out to him, like where some of this unfair blame is coming from and being like, okay, Marvin, sure. But superhero battles, you, you've been in a lot of them. I live in New York or the greater New York area. I'm familiar with them. Are they notoriously quiet things, these big battles where there's lots of, you know, cars being thrown around and buildings being destroyed? Is These are, these are quiet events, right? Uh, you know, and approaching it from this kind of, set, you know, sarcastic, humorous place to kind of dig in under the layers of armor he's got on here and going like, you know, they're pretty loud usually, right? They're, they're things that are pretty loud. So is it possible that would have woken up somebody in your house that it wasn't about you? Now, yes, you did go and wake up your grandfather and the two of you were looking out that window when the car came through. But is it something that you can control? Can you control being at that window? Could you have controlled the car flying through the window? Could you have controlled Soldier Boy doing that? No, absolutely not. These are just things that happen. And it's really difficult to talk to people about trauma in this way because we want somebody to point the finger out. We want somebody to blame. And when you're a child, often the blame goes inward because you're egocentric and that's how kids think. And Marvin was a kid when this happened. And so it's it was my fault. I'm the one that did this. When in reality, a superhero threw a car through your building. And in this world, that's pretty normal. And it wasn't your fault. And we can point the blame at the superhero, sure, if that's going to help you to you know, feel better about this. Yeah, we can. But really, it's these accidents that happen, this collateral damage that happens in these worlds that is not anything that's controllable by you as a civilian. You don't have a lot of power in this regard. And to really explore where does he have power? How can he move through this narrative of trauma and grief and look at it from a different angle? Look at it less of like, look at this horrible thing that I did. And more from the idea of how can we honor the people that have died because of these collateral damage with superheroes? Is the work you're doing now honoring that? Or would you like to do something else to honor that instead? And work through a lot of his personal issues around this stuff to go back to that original goal of dealing with the family separation, because by working through his trauma, his grief, all of those things together, it's going to make him a better dad. He's going to have more presence for his kid, like as in being present in the moment, he's going to be able to support his child in a way that's going to feel more genuine for him, as opposed to keep on having to ignore his child to go, feed this vendetta he has against the specific superhero. And it's a complex issue. This is not something that's going to be taken care of in 10 sessions and be like, all right, we're done. Bye. Marvin's going to be in therapy probably the rest of his life working on this stuff. And I would be realistic with him with that on the onset and say, this is not a small tune-up maintenance kind of thing. You're going to be doing a full engine overhaul and it's going to take years and it might take the rest of your life but it will make it more manageable, make it easier to deal with and give you the space that you need to be a parent and especially to be the kind of parent that you want to be. And that would be my work with Marvin.
Absolutely. I think you are so on the nose with the, how we as a culture will just kind of like fantasize and like idolize some of these excuses of like, oh, it's just OCD or like, oh, I'm so like flip it today. It's like that bipolar or like, oh, and I even am guilty of like, oh, like there's my ADHD showing. Mm-hmm. And um, we at times for some of these things might have a small degree of something, but that still does downplay the larger narrative of these real conditions people deal with. And when you have that trauma background as well, I think it is important for him to know that like, this is a a maintenance tune-up in some ways, but it's a maintenance tune-up that will only last if we're consistently talking about it. And we will need to consistently be doing this because if not, we will just fall back into those old patterns and thinking patterns because it is so deep and that's not your fault. Yeah. Um, And definitely. And I know um, even within like the culture of like um, OCD treatments, like group therapy and medication management. And there are so many resources out there to help with that world and um even like resources for the whole family of getting mom and daughter involved with their own like help yeah hey like this isn't easy to have to witness a loved one go through this do you need resources as well Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, talking about that, those mental health things that have become sort of public language, Mm -hmm. I think it's something that I've been working on for myself of like stepping away from those kinds of things and even stepping away from using the word crazy, which we're both from California. Uh, That's part of just how Californians talk. Right. (laughs) Um, It's like, whoa, dude, it was so crazy. This thing happened. And I've been spending a lot of time to really readjust my vocabulary to say what we really mean when we say that, which was, it was intense. Mm -hmm. And so that's been the substitution I've used. And, you know, to really, when it's like, oh yeah, I'm feeling like everything needs to be in its proper place today. I feel like everything's out of control is a much better way of communicating that instead of saying, oh, that's just my OCD. Everything needs to be in its place. Because more likely than not, that's not what you're dealing with. Um, you're just dealing with a sense of a lack of control or a sense of chaos and you want something, some way to organize that that chaos and get it into put into place. And yeah, I'm feeling all over the place. Well, yeah, you're, you might be tired. You might, your, your regular defenses for emotion regulation might be down. That doesn't mean you have bipolar Mm -hmm. and the people who really struggle with these mental health issues and have to live with these mental health issues, it really downplays the struggle of what goes on there and you know I've worked in in um what's the word I'm looking for Jen well yes but specifically I've worked in places but it's not places it's a clinical word and I can't think of it settings settings (laughs) um I've worked yeah I've worked in settings with people who have had severe mental health issues and it is not something to be flippant about. Mm-hmm. It's not something to be to be joking about because I, you know, I think the one I remember the most clearly and I was talking to a person who was in their early 20s and had had um, 
bipolar episodes with psychotic features, which means that they were having breaks with reality along with the emotion dysregulation and were put on medication. And we had to have a conversation of like, am I going to need to be on this medication my entire life? And having to have the actual real conversation with somebody who's in their early 20s, who's just getting started on this whole life journey thing and being like, yeah, you probably will. And being like, not maybe this specific medication because bipolar about every five years, people have to switch medication for medication to continue to be effective. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, you probably won't be on this specific medication for the rest of your life, but you're going to be on some form of medication probably for the rest of your life if you want the same kind of quality of life that you're having now. And I even talk to clients about how the stigma of mental health medication and has affected our viewpoint of what it looks like in our life of like, if I'm on mental health medication, I'm broken. I'm like, I'm not doing something that I should be doing. And I talked to them about how, if this was a medication for pretty much any other part of our body that we were told that we'll need to be working through our whole life, the stigma is a lot less. If you're a diabetic and you're dealing with diabetes, there's not a stigma about insulin the same way there is about depression medication. And, and with that said, there are stigmas and I don't want to downplay any of those experiences, but there is a different one for mental health medication for sure. And letting them know that it's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just, we're helping your body do something that it's struggling to do on its own. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that, Tyler, (laughs) why Marvin? I think because like we said earlier, there's there's a handful of characters in this show who really just deserve nice things, but don't get them because the people they have surrounded themselves with are horrible people. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And Marvin, I think is very clearly within that camp, although he does do the similar, a similar thing to like Butcher and Huey, where it's like, he knows that there's a choice to be made and there's a choice that's going to be healthier. And then he will do the unhealthy choice because he feels guilty about leaving behind Mm -hmm. the people that he's supporting. Um, And so, but the difference is his intentions are good. They're, they're selfless. They're not selfish. Like butchers are. Mm -hmm. Um, He does walk away. Yeah. In those moments of like, I'm not, this is too much. Uh, whereas like butcher's intention is I am going to get revenge on supers for being, you know, supers, basically. I hate, I hate soups and I'm going to go, you know, make sure that they all die regardless of the cost. I'm going to kill Homelander. That's like his whole thing. Whereas yeah. with Marvin, it's like a, I need to support my team. I, I am basically the medic mm-hmm. the, for my team and they are going to die without me even if that costs me my relationship with my ex-wife, even if that costs me my relationship with my kid, even though I want those things, this is bigger than that and bigger than me. So it's a different intention, but it still leads to him like really making just poor, poor, poor choices. Mm -hmm. Um, And even when he makes like a choice where, which we didn't talk about because it's not the, not the, chunk of the season I even wanted to deal with where he goes back to 
pick up his daughter for visitation or drop her off for visitation or something. And, or no, it's to pick her up uh, because she was at the, the rally for Homelander. Mm-hmm. Um, and he punches out. And he the... punches the stepdad in the yeah. face uh, and like just beats the crap out of him. And there's a part of you as an audience member that's going like, yeah, that dude deserved it. And then also as a clinician, I was like, and there goes his visitation with his daughter. Yep. Like if there are charges pressed at all, that mom is now getting 100% custody. Mm-hmm. There's no way he is like right. getting this, away with that. If this was any kind of um, legally based visitation, it's gone. And then also that man has the right to press charges now. Yeah. So I think it's that definitely that thing of like, he's a sympathetic character and he makes bad choices and he's dealing with a very obvious mental health issue that we haven't really talked about. Yeah, so absolutely. yeah, that's kind of where I came from with that. Well, thank you. And with <laughs> that, we'll be taking a short break and we'll be back more with the boys. Hey y'all, this is Jennifer. We wanted to reach out and let you all know that we are on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories with Shrinks and on Twitter, Shrink Stories. We post before episodes, little sneak peeks about what we're talking about and trying to engage more with our community about the topic. You can find that and join the story with us online. Welcome back to Stories with Shrinks, where we are talking about the boys. I just wrapped up talking about Marvin T. Milk, or M.M., as he is known. And I believe, Jen, you also have a new client today. I do. I am working with a Japanese female, cisgender, heterosexual. And in this case, of which we'll dive in more as well, I am working with her interpreter as well. I am working with uh, Kimiko. She is um, both a soup and human, and she's coming in posts a lot of different events going down, but the primary one that she is dealing with is the act of choosing to be a soup again and how that plays in with her identity process and her grief process and she came in kind of on recommendation but then also maybe a little I feel like all of the characters on the boys at one time or other would be mandated to come into therapy yeah probably a little bit like especially if they're now contracted through the government they're probably getting mandated a little bit. Yeah. Just, just kids. Uh, but again, we're coming in to talk a lot about um, self-acceptance, self-identity, purpose. And as something I always love and appreciate grief narratives. Mm-hmm. But what I also specifically wanted to talk about, and I mentioned, is the concept of working with an interpreter. So in this scenario, um, this would because when working with individuals who speak a different language nine out of ten you're not working with an interpreter if you're 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 going to seek therapy in the language of your primary like your first like your first language so (laughs) if you're spanish speaking japanese speaking yada yada you're going to find a therapist that speaks that language and i know within the therapy community there's also deaf hard of hearing um 
individuals who have interpreting license, who know sign language, and in different combinations of all of those requirements, who are therapists as well, and can work with individuals who are deaf, hard of hearing, mute, or use sign, uh, sign language, or a version of sign language as their primary form of communication. With that said, though, there is still a huge need for more. It is not something that's easily accessible and found within this community and this need. And there's more often or not individuals coming into therapy with interpreters. And given also in this dynamic that she's formed her own form of communication, this isn't Japanese sign language, this isn't American sign language. From my understanding, it's something she's developed with her brother over life. It would be interesting to see like her need for that interpreter as well, but we're just in our context going to assume American Sign Language. And what that means for confidentiality and what that means for building the therapeutic relationship and building therapeutic rapport because we are dealing with a third party in the room, but this is a group therapy. This isn't you know, identifying that the other is a part of the therapeutic conversation, but they are a part of the therapeutic alliance and making sure that everything is comfortable and kept ethical and confidential and legal. And also making sure that when it comes to terminology and diagnosis and communicating those specific needs, things are getting communicated appropriately um, professionally and ethically as well. So a lot of this would be at first building a rapport while also communicating what is it like to work with me through an interpreter. And by no means am I fluent in sign language. I will put that out there. But conversationally speaking, I can get by. I did four semesters, which is the equivalent of two years, um, like high school wise of a language for sign language. And um, I did all the way signs one through four, but I haven't gone forward with that with advanced sign language or culture or interpreting classes. But in a pinch, I can communicate with an individual who uses sign language. And in previous jobs, not in the therapeutic setting, I have worked with interpreters before with clients at tutoring centers and whatnot. And being able to communicate one-on-one -on -one with an individual. But with that said, I would never rely on my skill set to communicate the nitty-gritty details because I don't want something to get misinterpreted. And whenever there would be confusion, making sure that I understand what um, Kimiko is communicating and not just relying on a third party of asking for verification or asking for clarification of, am I understanding this correctly? Is this getting translated to the best of our ability correctly so that I can truly understand what she's experiencing? So diving into that then, when we're talking about her experience of growing up in Japan and being kidnapped and serving in the army, escaping, taking prisoner. She has a deep trauma history even before she became a soup. And giving her a chance 
And I feel like this is one of those stories and narratives that in a therapeutic setting, we wouldn't dive into right away. There would have to be a long standing therapeutic alliance before we would even touch those origin stories for her. But understanding that that is a part of her narrative, working first on the here and now, you decided to take compound B again. And that's what you're coming in with. The back of my mind, we're gonna, I'm gonna know about that, that history, because that would have come up in the intake, just basics. And how I handle that when I ask these questions in an intake setting is, you know, giving that precursor of, hey, we're just trying to get a basic timeline right now. And I understand that these are things that you may not feel comfortable talking about yet. And you can just straight up say, I'm not comfortable answering that question. But in general, yes, there's a trauma history. Cool. That's all I really need to know for the sake of this intake. We will dive in farther. Um, but giving them that, that grace of you don't have to tell me yet. And just give me a heads up of something maybe going on in the background, or I'm willing to give this much information, but this is where I'm comfortable with just meeting someone maybe 38 minutes ago or whatever it looks like. Um, so again, focusing on the here and now of what was it like to go to do the one thing you thought you never would want? You never wanted these powers. You struggled with these powers for so long. The identity of feeling like a monster, feeling like the villain, feeling like you're out of control, and then choosing that. And with that, choosing the acceptance of self, of how can now choosing the compound V and taking a, a note from Tyler's wheelhouse of acceptance commitment therapy of acceptance of self and starting with just the here and now part of what are things that um, we can, that this decision allows us to accept about ourselves now that we can take ownership of these decisions and the larger picture of then finding our purpose for so often she, has been a tool in other people's wheelhouse. And so much of this past season in the voids was talking about getting to have autonomy over our sense of purpose and not just being a cog in someone else's grander scheme and allowing her to say, I'm choosing this for my chosen family because this is my purpose right now. And I can find ownership and identity in this sense of purpose on a larger scheme and talk about her relationship with the boys and this chosen family in the United States and what her relationship with Frenchie means to her. I loved like zooming out the, the story arc of her and Frenchie this season because it became so much more than just the, oh, we're the love story dynamic. I love how it was, you know, we love each other as family. We are more than just the romantic interest in the background happening and what it like to have that family after feeling and experiencing losing so much of that family of origin and giving her a space to really take ownership of her decisions and feel as if she does have autonomy over herself and her body so that we can then work on those deep-rooted trauma and grief narratives of what happened to herself and her parents and her brother throughout her childhood and adolescence. 
so that she can then reorient and rewrite that narrative from a place of you're right back then it wasn't my fault I didn't have control over 99.9% of my circumstances and I was put into these positions and in the sense of survival it made me make and do hard things but that wasn't my fault and looking forward taking that narrative piece of hey I'm dealing with panic and anxiety now from these triggers of seeing these soups doing things. I can take control over my decisions now. What can I control right now? What can I do right now to help comfort those parts of me that are anxious? And giving ourselves the reminder of how much autonomy over ourselves we do have right now. And how these people in our lives and these villains around us, these other 95% of her comrades and the boys and other soups don't get to actually control us. We can say no. We can step away and allowing her to feel that freedom to do so if necessary. And again, when working with the interpreter in the room, making sure that she feels safe to even you know, have this process. So again, so much of this would be building that trust between me and um, Kimiko, Kimiko and the interpreter, me and the interpreter, and then all three of us together to make sure that we could do the work that was necessary. And that would be my time with her and all that. Yeah. Very interesting exploration of like, yeah, when you have a third person in the room that is translating, it's such a difficult thing because it's just like, you don't know what, like you as the clinician don't know what's being said right. verbatim. And there's always a loss of information in that mm -hmm. translation, mm -hmm. whether it be the specific words used or slang or, you know, and it really requires a lot of trust in the interpreter to interpret things correctly. Yes. And it can be really difficult. Uh, I know that, you know, I've had this happen where I've had people translating because I don't speak Spanish yep. uh, and being like, I really hope that what I'm saying is coming across correctly. Right. Because even like culturally speaking, the way we say something may not get translated the same way. Yeah. And, you know, having that voice of authority in the room and wanting to make sure things are ethically and legally said correctly, but then how is that getting translated and then also humor, sarcasm, things that we do to build rapport. How is that getting communicated and translated? And I've had individuals in, um, interpret for me for Spanish as well. And there is that awkward, like, I'm going to trust you. Like, even when it's just me in the room and I've had to help individuals in the lobby, like paperwork wise, because... Um, the person who speaks Spanish in the office just isn't there yet. And I'm just taking out Google Translate and apologizing. Like, <laughs> like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I recognize that I'm at fault here. Like, I'm gonna try to my best help you and um, be able for them to realize that like, they, like I'm doing the disservice here for not being able to help you better. Um, but it is, it's so challenging and 
there and again I just want to speak to the you know there's so much innate like is it abilityism? Ableism. Ableism. Thank you. That we take for granted when language, the primary language in our culture, is spoken. Mm-hmm. And shout out to all of our bilingual therapists. If you right. listen to this and you're bilingual and you're a therapist, shout out to you. <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work. Right. And. Um, when your language isn't a spoken language the amount of stigma and discrimination you face because you know you're you're not doing it correctly yeah you know just even the need like there's there's such conversation even within the deaf hard of hearing and mute community the amount of well you're not this amount of deaf so you don't understand and i speak from that from a person who is hearing and doesn't have um, that that struggle and with friends within the culture and community and participating in culture and community events only having witnessed some of it like I don't know and truly understand what you go through Um, Mm -hmm. but it is having heard stories like that about that particular community I can yeah I can also say coming from a, a place of somebody who is hearing but I have, I have no people within that community. And yeah, it's, it, there is a, a lot, a lot There's with a lot. that. Um, yeah. Cause even my, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like I um, was teaching sign language for an individual who was mute because yeah. of medical treatment. And a lot of people are like, wait, what? Like, it's not just for like deaf and hard of hearing. It's like, no, there's a lot of different needs for sign language. If you can't communicate with verbal language. Right. It's useful. uh, The idea, and I've talked about this with individuals who are working in special needs and differently abled classrooms of the idea that like, oh, so many people get written off because they, um, they're non-communicative. It's like, no, they just communicate in a different way. Do not tell me that these individuals, you know, are nonverbal, non-communicative, like you're writing them off. They are more than able to communicate their needs. They just don't communicate them in a way that you find acceptable. And that's not fair. (laughs) And providing services for all needs, despite language barriers is so important and giving everyone the opportunity to, to seek therapy. There you go. Well, thank you very much. And what about Kimiko made you choose her? Well, I wanted to talk about sign language and therapy because sign language <laughs> is really cool. And it's another thing we really haven't talked about because we are not bilingual individuals. Like we don't sure. talk about, you know, doing therapy services in a different language. Um, yes, I know sign language, but not to the point where I would feel comfortable working with a deaf individual in sign language. Um, and wanted to bring that aspect into the podcast of what it would be like to work with an interpreter. But I think also to you, what you were mentioning is there are individuals in this show who are so extreme in the sense that like, yeah, Homelander needs therapy, but my God, he would never go to therapy. It would be a waste. Mm -hmm. It would be a waste of time. Um, And there's very few cases. I think it would be a waste of time, but for Homelander specifically waste of time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. He can't feel empathy. Uh, And 
it's it well we have a di- we have a diagnosis that he would fit under which is well a former diagnosis because technically the access to diagnoses don't exist anymore right <laughs> um but uh antisocial yeah. personality disorder mm-hmm. uh and we have discussions within the field about how do you treat antisocial personality disorder and the answer is you don't right turns out right. um because the person lacks empathy, they lack an ability to see how their their actions impact others other than how it can help themselves. Mm-hmm. And personality disorders in general are very difficult to treat because mm-hmm. you can't necessarily change someone's personality. Right. So for like the same reason for you with Marvin of, you know, finding an individual who, who you, you empathize with on that human level because so much of Kimiko's narrative has been exploit of her. Yeah. And she genuinely is just trying to make the best decisions while feeling so manipulated and controlled. I mean, the reason she was a part of the boys was because she was being held captive until it became her choice to stay. But then you kind of do feel like, well, it's not my choice anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm too far in and too, too deep into the system of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would hope like end game would be to give her the sense of autonomy and freedom over her decisions that if she decided to continue her work with the boys, great, cool, we'll process and talk about it. And I talk about this all the time with clients of your decisions to stay or go in whatever circumstances is your decision. And I want mm-hmm. you to know that I don't think there's a correct decision for you. You might think I think there is, yeah. and I might sometimes be a little biased of like, I want the best for you but I'm not controlling you. If you decide to stay, we're going to talk about it, process it, and make sure you feel comfortable with that decision. If you decide to leave and go, we're going to talk about it, process it, and make sure you feel comfortable with that decision. If you're not ready to make that decision yet, guess what we're going to do? We're going to talk about it, process it, and make sure you're comfortable with the process of talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting as a therapist, because obviously we have opinions, we have ideas of like what, like I, you know, I have had clients where I just like break up, just break up with your partner. This is yeah. why I don't do, don't do couples therapy also. Right. Um, but you know, I've had clients where like my inner monologue is like, y'all probably should, it's healthier in the long run if y'all break up. Right. But that's or not like, my choice to make. It's you not my be working in this job anymore. Or yeah. Like, you it's not my opinion to voice. It's not my, it's not my choice to make for yeah. them. And so while there is that voice inside my head, while I'm doing therapy, I just turn the volume down on it. I know it's there. I know I have my opinions and my biases. And we go through the thing with that person from the perspective of you are the one who gets to decide this. Mm -hmm. You are the one who has the control over your life. Not me, not your partner, not your boss, nobody. It's just you. And if you're looking at your life and you're going, wow, things feel really chaotic and I really don't like this then you are the one who has the ability to change those things. Sorry. <laughs> you couldn't say that without me making that joke. You yeah, I know you're good. You're good. Um, uh, but I, no, it's so yeah. true. It's so true. And uh, giving yourself that sense of autonomy over it. And um, the I was just going to add that the only time I will interject, and it's not so much of what you have to do, it's if there's a safety concern, you can stay, but we're making a safety plan. Like, I need you to know that like, this is the seriousness of a situation where I don't care really how you proceed. You're proceeding with a safety plan in mind, regardless of the circumstances. Like that is the only time that you're going to hear a biased 
out of me is like, okay, cool. If you are choosing to stay, if you're choosing to go, we're going to do this correctly in the sense that like, if you stay in this dynamic and there's a safety concern, we're going to make a safety plan. If you choose to go and there's a safety concern, we're going to make a safety plan. Yeah. Yeah. Just like anything else. I think the limit comes when safety becomes not a thing. So for Kimiko, there would be a lot of safety plans in place. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's difficult thinking about that with a superhero, right? Like with somebody who's super powered, how do you make a safety plan? Because like, do you have a safe house? It would just be extreme versions of it of like, do you have a safe friend to go to? Do you have a safe house to go to when you're not getting tracked? How do you know how to get a burner phone? How do you know to make sure you're not being tracked or followed? You know, if you are picked up by, if you see black vans that are tinted, go inside a public place. (laughs) It's yeah, it's a, make sure you and with her language dynamic making sure that you have a way to communicate that you're in danger you're in need you need help um maybe you don't trust the authority (laughs) get on your phone and start filming (laughs) don't trust authority as a part of safety planning for a lot of my clients already right (laughs) i do appreciate how starlight fought off so much by just being like i'm recording yeah social media who knew? <laughs> opposite, opposite of our, uh, opposite of our first question. What, what scene was like? Yes, right. When she was like, "Oh, by the way, I'm live streaming." Right. And Homelander's like, "Ha! Uh-huh, you can't record us when we're running lines." <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so good. That whole scene was great. Um, but anyway, thank you all yes. for joining us on this journey into this very dark dark universe uh we'll try to keep it lighter next time honestly we did pretty good for the considering the content of this show we did a really good job but also next time we'll pick something a little less uh dark and gritty (laughs) yeah and not just like gore violent like real life violent yeah actively violent (laughs) next time we'll pick something a little less uh spiky but otherwise thank you all for listening if uh you got the chance go and Follow us on Instagram at Stories with Shrinks. Leave a review on this podcast on your podcast network of choice, wherever you're listening to these things. Uh, and yeah, if you enjoy it, tell your friends. We're always trying to grow our audience and get more people listening. I mean, we do this because we have fun doing it, but we would love you if more people listen to it right. as well. Uh, and yeah, answer our get to know you question yourself on Spotify if you listen to us there. And I think that's all I got. I think that's all the spiel. That's Mm -hmm. the spiel. So thanks y'all till next time. Take care, everyone. Stories with Shrinks is an entertainment and education podcast. Our views are our own and should not be considered canon or associated with any of the media or universes we discuss. And thank you to Purple Planet Music for our theme song, Phoenix Rising. You can find music for all your podcasting or YouTube needs at www.purple-planet.com.